I think many of you will agree with me that if you haven't seen a version of Fiddler on the Roof, you're culturally deprived. And if you, you know, it starts out with a little monologue from a Jewish man named Tevya from a little Russian village called Anatevka. And Tevya says, a fiddler on the roof. Sounds crazy, no? But in our little village of Anatevka, you might say, every one of us is a fiddler on the roof, trying to scratch out a pleasant, simple tune without breaking his neck. It isn't easy, you may ask, why do we stay up there if it's so dangerous? We stay because Anatevka is our home. And how do we keep our balance? That I can tell you in one word. Tradition. Because of our traditions, we have kept our balance for many, many years. Here in Anatevka, we have traditions for everything. How to eat, how to sleep, even how to wear our clothes. For instance, we always keep our heads covered, and we always wear a little prayer shawl. This shows our constant devotion to God. You may ask, how did this tradition start? I will tell you. I don't know. But it's a tradition. Because of our traditions, everyone knows who he is and what God expects him to do. Can you see him doing that? Because of our traditions, everyone knows who he is. And what God expects him to do. Well, Jesus makes, it's interesting because Jesus makes a similar point in the passage we're going to look at today. And now we're Baptists, I know that. Been hanging out with Baptist people since before I was born. And Baptists are famous for not liking to change. We don't. Like change. And it, it's bred a whole bunch of internet humor, hasn't it? Right? You know, how many Amish people does it change to take to change a light bulb? They don't know what a light bulb is. Yeah. Uh, how many, right? How many Catholics does it take to change a light bulb? They use candles. They use light. How many Pentecostals does it take to change a light bulb? Well, they can do it faster because their hands are in the air, you know. How many Baptists does it take to change a light bulb? Change! Are you kidding? We don't change anything. We're Baptists. Because of our traditions, everyone knows who he is and what God expects of him. Well, at least we know what we expect of them, right? Jesus goes, interestingly, right after this. And it's very interesting because, as you know, I'm preaching through the book of Matthew, the God, Matthew's Gospel. I'm not picking these topics. I'm just preaching through the book of Matthew. And I'm not sharp enough to figure out that on this day we would be at this place. But if you were to ask me, what is one of the most important things that the Baptist said evangel should know, it would be the point that Jesus made today in the little story, the tiny little parables that spill out of a question that was asked of Jesus and a question that Jesus asked in response to the question that was asked of him in good rabbinical tradition. And the text is in Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. Let's read it. We'll talk through the story a little bit. We'll apply it. And uh, it might get uncomfortable today. Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Why do we 
And the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast. Jesus said to them, he asked a question. Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be snatched away, will be taken away. And then, then they will fast. Then Jesus tells, just gives a couple little, some have called these parables. They're tiny if they're parables. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Then he, then he gives another one, verse 17. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins or else the wineskins break. The wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. Well, here you have a question that was asked of Jesus, and he answers it with a question, and then he tells these two little stories. And your question probably is, so what does that have to do with us? A lot. Especially Baptist folk that are not given to change. We need to talk about change this morning. In tradition, it's uh, exactly what Jesus had to say to the Pharisees and to the followers of John the Baptist that asked him the fasting question. So the disciples of John the Baptist come to Jesus with a question, and they're asking, you know, we and the Pharisees all fast on the same day. According to the book of Luke and early Christian tradition, the Pharisees had two days a week that they fasted, and they forced that on other people. The Bible didn't say for them to fast two days a week. The Old Testament didn't tell them that they had to fast two days a week. But they had added that to the Bible, you see. They had added that. And they had not only added that, but then they now expected other people to do it. And they were judging the followers of Jesus as to whether or not they were truly pious because they didn't fast when the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist fasted. So, again, when they, they, they bring the question here in verse 14. And Jesus answers with the question, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? This is a very powerful, like all of Jesus' questions, all of Jesus' stories, all of Jesus' prayers, a very powerful thing for Jesus to say. It's loaded, loaded question. Jesus is saying to them, is it appropriate for the attendance of the groom to fast on the wedding day? And what's the obvious answer to that question? Well, of course it's not. If there's one time it's appropriate to have a feast, it's on the wedding day when the groom is there. But the image of the groom, is the idea is the husband of Israel. Jesus is likening himself to the husband of Israel. He is making a bold claim of Messiahship, of divinity. He's saying, is it appropriate since the groom is here for the attendance of the groom to fast? This is, a, this is an in-your-face question. This is an informative question. It's a very powerful leading question. And so he's, don't miss the claim that Jesus is making. He's calling himself the bridegroom of Israel. He's saying, I am Israel's husband. This is a direct claim of divinity. And so now he's kind of saying, are you kidding me right now? God is here, and we're having a celebration, and you are telling me that we're supposed to be fasting? You guys don't have any idea what's going on here. He just very, 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 very directly with a question says, you don't have any idea what time it is or what's going on. 
He says, join the celebration. He says, don't sit this out. He says, time to be happy. It's time to feast. It's time to be jubilant. It's time to invite others because it's the wedding day. The groom is here. The bridegroom is here. It's not an appropriate time to fast. There will be a time when the bridegroom is snatched away and the word given there kind of points to what happens to Jesus on the cross. After that will be a time when it's appropriate to fast. My dad, my dad used to tell me, Kenny, don't laugh when other people are crying or cry when other people are laughing. It's probably a good idea for us to examine our hearts with that little thermometer. What is it that makes me laugh? And what is it that makes me cry? And are they the same things that make... Am I happy when Jesus is happy and I'm sad when Jesus is sad and not the opposite? There are good fasts and there are bad fasts. There are good feasts and there are bad feasts. There are are those who fast for show. That's not good. And, And here you have people that are pressured to fast when they don't really want to fast in their heart. Has that ever happened to you? I've been in religious environments before where I was pressured to fast. I have never enjoyed an enforced fast. I've actually never enjoyed a fast. <laughs> I've never enjoyed, especially somebody saying, guess what, you're going to fast today. I'm like, that makes me want to eat steak. Well done, steak. No, and then Jesus, in order to, to really illustrate, in order to make it really clear, he gives us two pictures that initially... They're hard to understand. But they're, they're so powerful. With both of them together, you can't really, you can't really worm off the hook. Uh, Pharisees now were not the guardians of the Old Testament law. The Pharisees were not all about the Old Testament law. Jesus loved the law. This matter of fasting that's introduced there in verse 14, it isn't about keeping the Old Testament law. It's about keeping what they had added to the Old Testament law. In simple terms, it's not about obeying the Bible. It's about obeying what people added to the Bible. And we all do that. We all have traditions. We have to have things we like. There are dozens of them in the room right now. The way we do worship, the way we dress, everything about that. It's cultural. Lots of those things. You will not find them in the Bible. They're things we like. They've grown up around us. The fact, the way we do things. Something as simple as a worship bulletin or wearing a tie. Or, or, and, and if I start giving you the list, I'll get everybody mad right away. And I don't intend to do that yet until later in the service. So stay with me for now. We gotta think about this because Jesus, when he came to earth early on, he said to people that were the guardians of the tradition, don't you make proselytes to your tradition. Make proselytes to me. Have followers of me, not your tradition. And don't elevate your tradition to the place of biblical law. That's what he's saying. Um, really, they're coming with the question, why is your religion so different from ours? And we are the watermark of true religion, you know, the Pharisees. John MacArthur says, they're saying, how come you don't do what we do? How come your approach is so different? And that's really a really important question. You see, they don't see religion as a matter of humility, of sinfulness, of repentance. They see religion as a matter of ceremony, as a matter of ritual, and there are many like that today, end quote. So there's a sense in which, in which what Jesus is saying here, he gives these two pictures. And there's a sense in which he, notice what, when we talk about these two pictures, you see that he's saying, don't, one of the things he's saying, don't force new life into old forms. 
one way of looking at it would be don't force new converts or, or young people or new people in the faith to have the same traditions that you do and elevate them to the point of biblical authority. Jesus said not to do that. And, and he gave these illustrations. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. In other words, let's say that you have this like perfect pair of jeans that, that is just perfectly worn out. And if you don't understand that you're not hip, you don't get it. You know, if you wear jeans that are like, they're not worn out, then you're clueless cultural. You don't know what you're doing, right? I mean, cool people buy jeans worn out with holes and they're worn, you know. So like, if you want to wear jeans, all right, they got to have a little wornness to them. And now if you get a tear, if you go get a brand new piece of denim and you sew it to that, it isn't going to work. The new piece isn't going to work with the old piece. It's going to tear the old piece. You have to wear the old piece out before you sewed it on. He says the old, the old and the new here aren't going to mix. The new life isn't going to work with the old traditions. Jesus is saying, you need to change. Jesus is saying, you have a choice. You can not change and not follow me, or you can change and follow me. Jesus is saying, you can obey the Bible, the Word, or you can add to the Word and you can obey that. He, he used another uh, illustration. They would use kind of a, a primitive bottle made from animal skins. The neck of an animal would hold their wine, and the wine would expand. And if you put new wine in old wineskins, the wineskin would burst. He's saying this new life is not going to be contained in your old traditions. They're saying, if you come onto our religious turf, you need to fit into our religious thing. And Jesus says, this is a totally different thing we're doing. And it's not just the new covenant, old covenant. It's important that we see that. It's not just the new covenant, old covenant. That is true. But the passage here isn't really talking about that. It's talking about extra-biblical traditions. And we know that because it's introduced by the question about the fasting. And Jesus wasn't defending, they weren't defending the Old Testament law of fasting. They were defending their additions to the Old Testament law. Are you getting this? So we've got to see the same thing is true here because we're going to the application part. You think about it, it's good to take pictures and line them up like this. What's the wine? What's the wine skins? And so forth. What's the old wine? What's the new wine? What's the wine skins? And the picture of the wine skins there in Verse 17. The wine is, is the gospel, the life of God, of true righteousness. It's the true righteousness in Matthew's construct that he keeps going back after. People who are truly righteous and what true righteousness is. And the wine is the life of God, the new life of God that comes in genuine and true righteousness. And the old wine skin was the pharisaical, rabbinical Judaism, the addition to the Old Testament law that they were insisting on. And the new wineskin would represent the way of righteousness that Jesus was coming to introduce a whole new structure from the temple and the synagogue to the church of Christ. It's a whole new structure, and it's going to involve radical change. Now, extra-biblical traditions can be like old wineskins. They can just be inadequate to do what needs to be done. There's supposed to be a new life going on, a new life flowing, people coming to faith in Christ, new disciples being made, an active kind of vibrant living kind of a thing. And the old structures aren't going to hold that new life if there's new life. And if we insist on old structures, then it can bring damage to the new life. You see, you have kind of a choice to make. Now, there's examples of this. I'll start with ones that are easier to take and swallow. Stories I've heard. For instance, I heard once about some missionaries that were doing some primitive missions work. 
And in order to get to the tribes they were going to, they had to go by canoe. Now later on they came along with missionary aviation, and they cut the time way down that we could fly right into these tribes. But the old missionaries said, that's not right. That's not the way we do things. They insisted on their canoes were the only right way to give the gospel to these people. It was an extra-biblical preference. It was a tradition that they had attached significance to the canoe. I heard, uh, not to pick on missionaries here, but I heard once of uh, some missionaries that got into conflict on the field. And the conflict was over peanut butter. Uh, I guess the deal was, in their particular field, it was a luxury to have peanut butter because they didn't have it there. So if you got peanut butter, it was because it was shipped from the States and it cost a lot of money. And so if you had peanut butter, then you were quite privileged. And some of the other missionaries were angry with missionaries with peanut butter. The without peanut butter missionaries got mad with the with peanut butter missionaries because that was extravagance. Obviously, it's hard to find a Bible verse on peanut butter. There are Christian uniforms that we tend to insist on, like wearing suits and ties. Did you know I was going to go there? Are certain styles of dresses that all pious women wear. Or, or for instance, remember there was a time when there was a time, I remember this, and I'm not that old. I mean, I look old, but I'm not that old. There was a time when I heard, like, muffled conversations in the foyer of certain churches, not this one, where it was very questionable if an evangelist came and he had wire-rimmed glasses or a colored dress shirt. He was probably not orthodox. And we're laughing now, but they weren't laughing then people were serious back then. So you think, the, the tie is nice, I like it, I prefer the regimental stripe, but it's not in the Bible. It's not in there. Bob, it's coming off, folks. Now, I've noticed only three of you are clapping. It's like... I'm just, this is one of my favorite ties, and it's a patriotic tie, so I'm going to give it to a very trusted person here who probably will not appreciate that I took my tie off, but I want you to remember my message. Okay, I'm not being inflammatory. I'm just saying, do you think Jesus wore one of those? He did not. He did not. He did not. I was once <laughs> I was up at camp, and I was speaking, and I didn't bring any shoes or sandals because I love to wear sandals. And uh, a church called me, can you come by on the way home and preach on Sunday? I said, yes, but I only have sandals. And they said, well, that's very unusual. So I preached in sandals, and about halfway through my message, I realized I was probably in good company. Because Jesus probably preached in sandals, too. Now, the very fact that me taking off my tie makes us suck in our breath in horror is evidence that we have the same problem. We do. There's stuff that we say, this is what we do. And if you don't do it, I doubt your spirituality. I'm not really sure you're on the team. You're certainly not in the inner circle. Until you find a tie, you can't be a leader, you know, or whatever. Let me just, I'm, I'm, not, bare, I'm not picking on the tie thing. I like a tie when I'm skinny, especially when I'm not skinny. They're very painful to wear. There was a time when communion had to be taken from a common cup. And then there was a time with, with disease and so forth that churches, concerted churches decided they would use individual communion cups. Can you imagine being in a meeting where they decided that? Jesus did not do this, they would say. 
Um, or, or of course, hymn books, you know, seems old, right? Using hymn books seems old. It, 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 and yet, you've got to think that when they came up with a printing press, when Johann Gutenberg invented the printing press, it was like the Internet of its day. It was on the cutting edge of technology. For somebody to have their own book, their own hymn book, was an amazing innovation. It was new. It involved a change. And I remember going to a church and trying to get them to put a projector in to project the hymns. And it was like I was wrestling through a doctrinal thing. But it wasn't a doctrinal thing. It was just looking up to sing the hymns instead of looking down to sing the hymns. That's all it was. Now, while I'm in here, I might as well just like stay here for a few minutes and get myself inextricably in trouble with you. Are soundtrack drums pleasing to God, but live drums are not pleasing to God? I'm just wondering... I understand. We want to show deference to one another. I get that. I'm not going to like, like Wesley is rapping Christian rap, and I didn't say to my dad, will you have Wesley come to your church and rap? But my dad, who's 75, said, send him and have him do it. I'm like, Dad, I don't think you want that. Let's just not go there right now. We, we, we've used the, the projecting of hymns, on the projector, on slides, to sing traditional hymns. I remember leading a group of 600 men, one of the high points of my life, leading a a group of 600 men singing, anointed singing, all hymns and all projected. Now that's a confusion right there, huh? It's kind of old and modern. It's put together. If we decide that we're going to take the gospel here and then we're going to elevate extra-biblical things to the same level of the gospel, we are going to get ourselves in a mess. People are going to see through that. So there are things that we, that we like. Um, like. We like Sunday school. We like revival services. We like citywide crusades. We like big seminars. We like evangelistic meetings on Sunday night. I've never been to one, but I've heard of them. Have you? Some of you that are older, you may have experienced a Sunday night evangelistic meeting. They tell me Sunday night used to be the time for evangelistic meetings. It's simply not the time that you generally get lost people to come to church anymore. It's a time for the faithful, usually, on Sunday night. If you disagree, I'll see you tonight. <laughs> and then, and then, but there was a time when it's like, if you don't do that, you're not a real, you're not like up here with us because you're not doing that. Right? Right? Right. Right, Ken. Good. That's right. I talked to the Lord about this, and so I'm good. And you got, you got things that we all like. First, I was thinking about Awana. We have the Awana registration slip right here. I'm going to very subtly slide this right into my message. And you do want to sign up because it's this week. How's that, Randy? Sign up for Awana. We like Awana, don't we? In Fremont, don't we? Like, we love it. Sure, it's fun. Uh, everybody's involved in Awana. It's great. In, in Fremont, we had Awana. In, in the Awana in Fremont, it was kind of neat because there was like our church was downtown, and a lot of the other churches didn't have the facilities that we had or the resources that we had. So we had Awana, and we would pack that Awana out with kids from all over town and all the churches around town. So they would come, and there was a little, little drive through. So if you wanted to hang out with people in town, Wednesday night was the time. You could go to church at, to First Baptist in Fremont on a Wednesday night, and you could stand there after Awana in the cool of a fall evening, and people from all the evangelical churches around town would drive through and pick up their kids and stop, and they would talk. It was just wonderful. It was a great thing. It's something I will remember all my life. It's something I will love. If you try to take my Christian camping experience away from me, I would scream. 
I love that Christian camping, but these are all innovations. There was a first time somebody did all those things. Awana was a very innovative, crazy new idea at one time. And so going, somebody getting a school bus and painting it church color and going out on Sunday and getting a bunch of kids. And yet there were groups for a while that said, if you don't send out church buses, you are not faithful Christians. And then the gas prices changed and they reevaluated their theology a little bit on that one. There is a little humor. I'm standing at Moody Bible Institute when I'm a kid and I see a bus go by from Hammond, Indiana. Jack Howe's First Baptist Church in Hammond, Indiana. If you know the geography a little bit, it's a long way from Hammond to Moody Bible. And the bus driver goes right by there. And there was an old story that kind of went around. Chris, you've heard this one, I'm sure, that they had a bus accident between First Baptist and Hammond and Jerry Falwell's bus in Texas somewhere. <laughs> These were aggressive bus ministries. And there were conferences where they would say, if you don't do it this way, then you're not really faithful to the Lord. And there was a time somebody would say, the way that you do evangelism is you come to church on Tuesday night and you go out and soul winning visitation on Tuesday night. And if your church doesn't have a Tuesday night soul winning evangelistic program, then you don't really make rank among Christians. Now, this is not true because the Bible doesn't say that. And you know, I could just go on and on here and I know you wouldn't want me to do that. There was a time... <laughs> When they had, when youth rallies was the big deal, my dad and my mom, their first date was at a Youth for Christ youth rally in downtown Chicago, Illinois. And that was a happening deal back then. Back then, that's where young people went. Christian young people went and the the guys that led youth, they didn't, they didn't lead with choirs. They did a special thing called evangelistic style song leading where one exuberant guy would get up and wave his arms and sometimes he wouldn't wear a suit. Sometimes he would wear a loud colored sport coat with his shirt and tie. Because it was all innovative and it was all new and that's what was going on. And lots of people got saved that way. But we just don't do the youth rally thing anymore. It went off to something else and it will change again. And it's important for us to ask ourselves some hard questions like this. Are you ready? How vigorously do you defend your own tradition? Are you more zealous for your extra-biblical tradition than you are for listening to the voice and the Spirit of Christ Himself? Do you feel especially safe doing things the way you've always done them? By the way, the answer to that question for most of us is yes. Somebody says, do you like the idea of change? And this is almost universally true. Nobody likes the idea of change, unless it was their idea. And in case you're freaking out this morning, I'm not planning on changing anything without the cooperation of God's people. But we better change some things. We better change some things. Now I'll tell you why in a moment. You look down on people who don't have the same practices as you do? Is it hard for you to accept the spirituality of Christians who do things different than you are than you do? Are you tempted to withhold approval from people who don't value your traditions? You see, here's the message. The church must not become a cultural preservation society. Jesus did not die on the cross and rise again so his followers could start museums all around the world. Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again so his followers could go out and roll up their sleeves and find lost people and help them come to Christ and obey Christ and be discipled and be baptized and obey Christ. 
So there's no virtue in endless innovation or change for the sake of change. And it's not wise and it's not right to mimic worldly things and slap a veneer of religion. And please don't go home and say that that's what I'm saying. Because I'm not saying that. I never have, never will. I'm not talking about that. But there is a sort of religious snobbishness, a religious prejudice. It masquerades as piety. And that will not, that will, will not receive another unless they've learned to adopt a particular religious preferences that we value. And that's not right. Now, we were talking about this in my study the other day with a couple of guys. And they gave me a powerful illustration that perhaps will resonate with you. These guys were raised in southeast Michigan. So they remember their childhood trips downtown to Detroit. And they went to Tiger Stadium. And it's an important part of their childhood that they would go to a Tigers game at Tiger Stadium, hear the organ and smell the peanuts and all of that. This is a big, but the stadium's gone now. It's completely gone. People scramble for relics of the old stadium, like my buddy that's a Michigan fan who has a van that looks like the Michigan's distinctive helmet. Congratulations on your win on Notre Dame last night, which you should have stayed up late to watch. And he has, and he has, uh, uh, in the little cup holders, he's actually cut cut AstroTurf out of the old stadium at the big house and put them in his cup holders. Guy is hardcore. He's a neat guy. He listened to me preach without throwing up for like seven years, Sunday morning and Sunday night. Invited my my sons to the big house for the game, even against the team you know, the other team. I didn't say it. I didn't say it. And so they have... (laughs) And so you have this tradition. And this tradition is valuable to you. And you like it. And it makes you feel all warm and fuzzy. But you know, you can't take your kids to Tiger Stadium anymore. It isn't there. But it doesn't mean they're not playing baseball. Hey, they're playing baseball pretty well. As a matter of fact, I would just suggest if you've got an extra five bucks, Detroit's a cool place. You can get a ticket for five bucks, you can park for five bucks, stand in the outfield, and you can experience Comerica Park. And you know what? Your kids will talk about it because they were never at Tiger Stadium. They never saw it. And things need to change sometimes. Things need to change. That's what Jesus is saying. You can't force... You can't put the new wine in old wineskins. But it's time for godly people to find a way to move forward. Here, I'm visiting this church I was telling you about, and I was walking through the, before the service, I was walking through the Sunday school rooms. This was like at 7 o'clock at night. They had a night service, and that, that was like, they had main services all day, and like they would repeat the service, and they repeated the service at night. And before that, they had a Bible training hour, and in that Bible training hour, the rooms were all full of people that were learning the Bible. And I just watched these people, just thrilling to see it. They gathered these people, and they were trying to make disciples of these people. And it occurred to me in my own heart, the end and our goal will not be to say, will be to say, not, our goal in the end will be to say, look at all the lives that were changed, not, we didn't change. Do you see that? You you, you missed the amen part, but that's okay. We'll get you there. Our goal is not to say, we didn't change. Our goal is to say, look at all the lies that are changed. That's our goal. And you see, there are people that would say, no, wait a minute, we don't change. you're, You're partly right. There are things we will never change by the grace of God. Our churches characterize that. We're General Association of Regular Baptists affiliated. We came out of the Northern Baptist Convention when they decided they weren't sure they believed the deity of Christ. It wasn't important if the Bible was the Word of God and the salvation by grace through faith. It wasn't important to teach that. We don't believe that way. We're going to teach those things. We're going to preach those things. We're going to teach and preach every phrase and every word of this book as accurately and as faithfully as we 
we can. But in order to reach people in our time, there are going to be changes. Jesus came along when He came and He said to people, I didn't come to give you a new version of what you're doing. I came to do a whole new thing. God is always doing a new thing. He is continuing. And some of you need a new thing right now. You don't need a religious museum. You don't need a tradition. You need something new to happen in your life. You need a breath of God to blow into your life. You don't need to preserve an old tradition. You need to have something happen in your life that has never happened before. You need to be free like you've never been free before. Completely fresh, completely new, new wine, new wineskins. God is always doing a new thing. He continually demands and empowers radical change. No one predates God because He's internal. So nobody's more traditional than He is. And no one will ever get ahead of Him, so He's eternally contemporary. So let's resist any compromise of biblical truth. And let's reject any apostate spirit of the age. But let's not miss what God is doing in defending our own traditions. Jesus has some very hard things to say to people who do that. So let's not let anything hinder the course of the gospel as it flows out from our lives. And let's be willing to change, to accommodate the new life that Christ always brings. And let's not confuse our preferences with the gospel. And while we can, until the bridegroom returns for his church, let's make disciples, not maintain a museum. Amen? Do um, go to your scriptures this afternoon. Reread the text. Pray what God would have you Pray that God would speak to your heart and that God would would, uh, teach you what he has to teach you in that. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you're always doing a new thing. You're always bringing new people into the kingdom. And even though there are just things I cherish about my past and things that I've done and things that I've been involved in that don't even happen anymore, I can't can't go to them anymore because they don't happen anymore. We can't do them anymore because they don't do them. We don't have hymns sing on Sunday nights anymore and stuff. I thank you that you are still alive. You are still doing new things. You are still changing hearts. You're still making people holy and pure and right. You're still saving people from their sin. You're still delivering people from their sinful habits. You're still snatching people out of the world and bringing them into the kingdom of your dear son. And for that, we thank you that you're ever doing a new thing. And I pray, Lord, that you would do it here over and over again. Bless the people who've gathered in your name, I pray today. In Christ's name, amen. Good day.